Well, good morning. If you are, are married, I would like to um, welcome you to your weekly beating, um, especially after that song. Thank you, David. Ouch, I think. Um, uh, if you're single, um, I hope that as we take kind of a virtue-oriented approach towards marriage, that you'll find great application in your relationships. But just to give you comfort, in two weeks we do have a message focused specifically on you, and uh, you should be afraid, very afraid. Okay? That's in in two weeks. Uh, This whole series may seem a little strange in terms of approach, uh, thinking about how to have a marriage like Christ's. I think the reason behind that is a contention that I have, and it is simply this, that good followers of Christ make good spouses. It's kind of obvious on its face, but good followers of Christ make good spouses. Better, better the follower, better the spouse. And if there is a deficiency in your spousedom, it is probably related to a deficiency in your relationship with Christ. Um, There is a remarkable correspondence. And so, that's why we're focusing on things like humility and faithfulness, and today forgiveness, like Christ's. The more Christ-like we are, the more beautiful is our marriage. And um, with respect to what we're talking about today, which is a forgiveness like Christ, very few things lie nearer to the center of our faith than the matter of forgiveness. Of what it means for us to follow Christ, forgiveness is so central in enabling and shaping that. And so as a result, it shouldn't surprise us that there is really no greater toxin, it seems, than to withhold forgiveness from your husband or your wife. And positively, there are virtually no more healing balms to administer to a difficult or strained marriage than the grace of a forgiveness like Christ. So today, I'm going to ask you to think about just two verses, um, two very powerful um, verses. Uh, They are located in different places in the life and ministry of Christ. Each one is surrounded by a story. One is a story Christ told. The other is a story he enacted, he lived out for us. And so um, we will start... In Matthew chapter 18, I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles there, and I will pray for God's kindness to come upon us as we look into the Word together. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, be kind to us now, and um, don't let us evade the good, hard work of the Spirit of God in bringing an uncomfortable conviction to us as we have need. 
in bringing a great comfort and hope to us as we have need, surely. Use your word now. Give us an extraordinary attention to what it is that you are speaking to us so that we might live in the joy of honoring you in this important matter. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think forgiveness is hard for us at many points, um, simply because we have so many reasons not to forgive. It, as soon as you start thinking about forgiveness, you start thinking about the but what abouts. But what about this or that? He, he doesn't deserve my forgiveness. She never asked for my forgiveness. I don't want to forgive him. I would rather get even. Isn't this beyond forgiveness? How many times do I have to forgive? And it's, it's that last question that Peter himself asks in the passage that we're going to spend most of our time looking at in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Peter comes to Jesus and he asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And then he ventures an answer. Up to seven times? Now, it's interesting. If you look back just a little bit before in Matthew 18, uh, the conversation has been revolving around forgiveness. Uh, talks about how God pursues wayward sheep, and then it talks about um, how the church pursues. And in verse 15 earlier, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. And I'm sure that gives um, rise to Peter's questions. So how many times do I have to do this with my brother? Um, seven? And seven, when Peter ventures that answer, is, is really a pretty generous offering. Generally speaking, in, in their day, the, the rule of thumb was three. You had to forgive someone three times and then let justice, you know, rain down upon them. You had to do it three times. So when Peter says seven, I think he's really thinking that this is a, this is a pretty generous offering. Uh, I mean, you think about it. The seventh time your child disobeys you in a given day, the last thing on your mind is forgiveness. Okay. Boarding school, yes. Forgiveness, no. Seven's a lot. Um, but Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And another way to render that in many of your Bibles is 70 times seven times. Either way, the meaning is basically the same. There's no end in sight to the forgiveness you need to give. You must always forgive, Jesus is saying. This is, this is math for you must always forgive. Always. And I think the stunned look on Peter's face must have prompted Jesus to reinforce his point with one of his favorite ways to teach us, a story. And so, 
He tells us a story beginning in verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. 10,000 talents is a massive amount of money. Some commentators say we are talking about a billion dollars. A billion dollar debt. Um, a talent was somewhere around 60 to 80 pounds of gold. 10,000 of those. A massive debt. The story continues. Jesus says, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. This is, this is inconceivable. Someone just forgave a billion dollar debt. I mean, he asks, all he asks for, he says, I just need a little time. He asks for patience. I just need a little time to scrape together a billion dollars. And instead, he doesn't get patience. He gets mercy. He gets forgiveness. And he's set free. Completely free. You know, imagine going down to your, to your, your, your bank, your lender, and saying, I, I'm a little behind on my mortgage. And they say, don't worry about it. You mean, don't worry about it, it's okay if I'm a little late? No, they say, don't worry about it. Just let the next 29 years go. We'll take care of it for you. It's like somebody doing that for all of our mortgages. This is massive uh, forgiveness. But Jesus' story continues. He says, but when that servant, that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. What's absolutely amazing about this, there's so many things that are amazing about this, almost unbelievable about this, is it, it sounds to me like it's on his way home from the great forgiveness he just got, right? When that servant went out, it's like he just walks out from this unbelievable billion-dollar forgiveness, and the first thing he does is go find somebody that owes him a lesser amount. 100 denarii, 100 days' wages, maybe uh, five, ten grand, okay, is what we're talking about here. And his fellow servant, and this should sound familiar, fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. 
Those words, those words, be patient with me and I will pay you back, should have rung in his ears with a deafening ring. They're virtually the same words he just used. in the room that he just walked out of. But after getting this outrageous grace, he now denies the reasonable patience um, that he himself had sought. See, the mercy he received had touched his bank account, but evidently had bypassed his heart. Well... When the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, it's pretty obvious, I think, that in Jesus' story, the king is like God. He gives lavish, billion-dollar forgiveness. It's a forgiveness that covers everything you've ever done, every thought, every desire, every deed. In Colossians chapter 2, it's describing that forgiveness. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. All of them. The slate gets absolutely wiped clean when God forgives Psalm 103 is such a beautiful portrayal of it. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's a billion dollars worth of forgiveness, this forgiveness that God gives. It's over-the-top lavish. And we don't deserve it. It's not why we get it. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. If the king is like God in Jesus' story, then we are like the servant, the undeserving servant. Think about it, honestly. How do you run up a billion-dollar debt? You think that's legit? I think it's questionable. And I think it's confirmed by the way that he treats his fellow servant. This is not a deserving candidate for such grace. I mean, how do you walk out of that kind of grace and then deny a mere fraction of it to somebody else in need? Now, this morning, there are probably some accountants in the room, and you're thinking, but it was 10 grand. 
10 grand is a bunch of money. If somebody owed me 10 grand, <laughs> that's a huge amount of money. It's not a billion dollars, but it's a bunch of money. And, and I, I want to make sure you get it here. The, the amount is really not the point. It's the ratio. To be forgiven a billion, how in light of that could you withhold forgiveness for 10,000? It's the ratio. You can check my math. It comes out to about 100,000 to 1. See, this is not a deserving recipient of this forgiveness in this story. And neither are we. Okay. Because if we see our own sin rightly before a radically holy God, then those are pretty much our ratios, aren't they? We are the billion-dollar debtors, and what is asked of us by our spouses or by anyone to forgive them is paltry by comparison. See, what our spouse needs us to forgive pales when compared to what has been forgiven us by our king, against whom every wrongful act, every dark thought has been ultimately directed. He was the one we slandered. He was the one we betrayed. He was the one we thought ill of. David had it right when he said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. But Jesus' story is not yet over. At least the application of it has not been made. Jesus is saying that the king forgives the undeserving with lavish grace. And then he says explicitly, right at the end of it, I think he's afraid we're not going to get it. He says it right at the end. He says essentially, you better pass it on. You had better pass this forgiveness on. Verse 35, this is the verse. It's the first verse I want you to really think deeply about. I want you to leave thinking about this today. Jesus says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. See, the way God forgives in Christ then is to forgive lavishly those who are undeserving. But Jesus makes the story about something more than that. He makes it about the way we forgive or more importantly, the way we don't forgive. And... The sobering reality behind it is God, like the king in this story, will not stand for it. He will not tolerate unforgiveness when such great forgiveness has been lavished on us. This is not some isolated verse. There is no, no weird textual problem here to explain this away. This is the consistent teaching of Jesus. Look at Luke 6.37, for instance. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. 
Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. There's a contingency he's expressing. In Matthew 6, when he's teaching us how to pray, he says, Pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And then he says explicitly, But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Do you understand how incredibly high the stakes are in terms of choosing whether to or not forgive someone who's wronged you? This is a shocking and troubling teaching. It is, it's troubling theologically. Already, some of your minds are thinking, what on earth does that mean? How could he say that? And I, I don't blame you at all. Is Jesus really saying that God's grace depends on me? Isn't that works? To say that to be forgiven by God, I have to forgive? I, I'll take a shot at that in a minute, but that's not the point don't let that sidetrack you. The point is not, how does this work? The point is that forgiveness is huge. It's huge, and to withhold it has life-threatening consequences. You forgiving those who have wronged you those who have wronged you repeatedly and don't deserve your forgiveness at all is absolutely vital. You must do this, Jesus is saying. And he's using one of the, some of the strongest language I can imagine. The point is passing on the forgiveness you have received is absolutely vital. To fail to do so is not only toxic to human relationships like your marriage, but also your relationship with God. It is absolutely vital that you forgive, that you pass on the forgiveness that you've received. That's, that's the point. Now, about that naughty theological problem that it raises, it, uh, it can be addressed a couple of ways. Um, and at one level, everybody seems to be pretty much in agreement. That is that if you fail to pass on the forgiveness you've received from God, your relationship with Him is going to suffer terribly. Um, and a particular way this seems to play out is with respect to prayer. Twice with this kind of teaching, Jesus couches it in the context of prayer. Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, when you stand praying... If you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And the idea is that, that 
uh, in the context of prayer, if you do not forgive, if you have an unforgiving spirit, then God is not going to answer your prayers. He does not forgive you in the sense that he does not answer your prayers. Um, think about it this way. I adopt you as my son or daughter. Okay? You come, you live in my house. You're my child. And I go out of town, and you beat up my wife, you steal my money, and you set my house on fire. I come back, and you say, Dad, can I borrow the car? We have a problem. We have a relational problem. If you think you're going to get anywhere near my car, my car may take you somewhere, but you are not going to borrow it. And it's a huge thing to have God, to have your relationship with God broken such that he answers you, doesn't answer your prayers. Um, one of the great blessings of the scriptures is to have God hear your petitions. Uh, Psalm 20, verse 5. Uh, we will shout for joy when you are victorious, and we will lift up our banners in the name of our God. This is a, they're, they're rejoicing with the victorious army. Then they say, may the Lord Grant all your requests. This is the great blessing. May the Lord grant all your requests. To have him not answer your prayers for help, for rescue, for protection, for provision, for your kids, for your loved ones, it is a huge deal to have your relationship with God broken by your unforgiveness and have God not hear your prayers, to have him withhold his blessing on your life. And so for some of us, this is one of the reasons, I, I think, why God seems so distant. Why well, you pray and like nobody's there. It may well be because of the unforgiveness you're harboring in your heart. And God has said, Jesus has said explicitly, if you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. And if that's not bad enough, others have suggested that, it, that it's reflective of even greater fracture of the relationship with God. Um, here are the words of, of John Piper. He says, the greatest risk we face as a church in these days is not that we may lose an organ or that we may lose money or that we may lose members or that we may, may lose staff or that we may lose reputation. The greatest risk is that we may lose heaven because one way to lose heaven is to hold fast to an unforgiving spirit and so prove that we have never been indwelt by the Spirit of God. He's not saying that we merit God's forgiveness. But he is saying when the day comes and there is a, an assessment of our works and we show the fruit of genuine forgiveness in our lives, that that fruit of necessity is that we are forgivers as well. And that if we have nothing to show, then we have had no real forgiveness in the first place. That unforgiveness is an indicator that you've never really experienced the forgiveness of God. 
And that perspective surely represents the severity of Jesus' warning when he says this, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Think about that verse. Forgiveness is huge in our marriages and in our relationship with Christ. Practically, Marlena Dietrich, of all people, said it well. She said, once a woman has forgiven her man, she must not reheat his sins for breakfast. Forgive. Forgive. You must forgive. There's a second verse. It has a second story. And I want us to think about that as well as we think about forgiveness and what it should look like in our lives. This comes from Luke chapter 23, if you'd like to turn there. Luke chapter 23, verse 33 and 34. Jesus is on his way to be crucified. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And I read that verse and I wonder, who are they? Who are they? Who are the ones that Jesus is praying for? And I think most narrowly we would say, it's those soldiers. It's the ones that they divided up his clothes by casting lots. It's those soldiers the ones who just nailed him to the cross. The ones now who are kneeled, knelt down there gambling over his clothes. He's praying for them. Another account in Mark chapter 15. Um, I'm sorry, I have the, I have the wrong, uh, that's the wrong passage. Um, yeah. This is the way it should read. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. And they put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes and they led him out to crucify him. The Gospels tell us that, that this, these were those soldiers. That they mocked him. They disrobed him. They put the purple robe on him. They put the crown of thorns on him. They spat on him. They struck him again and again. They were the ones who would pierce his side with a spear. And the water and the blood would come out. 
the role of the soldiers in Jesus' death is hardly a noble one. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, prays for those who put him there. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's a billion dollars worth of grace. Lavish and undeserved. And the Bible says that this lavish forgiveness is for anyone who asks of it. Ephesians 2 says it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. That means that you can be forgiven with billion dollar forgiveness today. All your sins can be wiped away. Will you do that? Will you, will you take that first step and receive that forgiveness from Christ for your sins today? And if you've done that, will you let it transform you? Will you pass on the lavish, undeserved forgiveness that you've received? See, if you're a follower of Christ, you really don't have any choice unless you're going to stop following. Ephesians is very clear. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We must forgive our spouses every single time they wrong us. That is what it means to follow Christ. We must always forgive lavishly, even when they are wholly undeserving, just like we are. just like we are. Let's pray together. Father, it's good for us and hard for us to think about the wrongs done to us by people we have trusted by people who justly deserve anything but forgiveness. Something small and silly, something's huge. And yet I, I pray that we would not dam up the river of your forgiveness at the edge of our property, our personal space we would pass it on. And so Lord, I, I pray for those in this room who've been deeply wounded by their spouse, by their husband or by their wife. I pray that forgiveness would flow through them like a river. Some in this room are not speaking to parents. 
Some are not speaking to brothers or sisters. Some are harboring bitterness, somebody at work or a neighbor. Somebody that doesn't deserve forgiveness. I pray that the grace they have received would flow through them beautifully. So Lord, give us grace now as we approach your table and delight in the grace that is for us who believe. And we do this in Christ's name. At the table today, we remember the forgiveness of Christ for us. We remember a billion dollars worth of forgiveness. We remember that all our sins have forgiven us. Before you come to the table today, let me encourage you most strongly first to receive forgiveness from Christ before you come to the table. Don't settle for the symbol when you can have that which it represents. Christ offers forgiveness for you. And also, before you come today, resolve to pass it on. If you have been caught in the sin of unforgiveness before you come to the table today, you should resolve in your heart that you will, by God's grace, pass it on, even as you've been forgiven. Undeserved. Lavish. For you to be rightly related to God, that's essential. But as we come to the table, we come remembering the grace that is ours, sufficient in every way, for all of our sins. And so we remember together as followers of Christ, beneficiaries of His grace, people who've been forgiven the great debt, the debt of our sins. That on the night on which He was betrayed, He took bread, He broke it, and He gave it to His disciples. He said, this is my body. And in like fashion, He took a cup And explained to them that this was the new covenant that's in his blood, which is shed for them for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. The table at North Wake is open for anyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ who's walking in fellowship with him. So lay down your, your unforgiveness and come to the table and find grace, find help for just such a time as Let's pray. Father, we welcome the mercy that this table represents. And we are glad to share a meal with our Savior and remember and delight and obey the one who loved us unto death. We remember now his body broken and his blood shed for our sins. Lord, strengthen us in these moments so that we might pass it on freely. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus the Christ, our Savior.